Today, we start a new series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. And for several weeks, we're going to be pursuing that that theme. So I'd like to tell you why it is that I wanted to teach on this subject, give you an idea of what it's about, and then we'll, we'll delve into it, okay? The reason that I wanted to teach on this is because uh, I'm convinced that one of the most difficult challenges for Christians and for the church, uh, if not the most difficult challenge, is to clearly define our relationship as individual followers of Christ and then as a collection of followers of Christ called the church, to define our relationship to the world clearly. And then having defined that clearly, to then pursue that in our daily lives accordingly. Now, that may mean nothing to you. When I say that, you may say, what is he talking about? Uh, The world, when I say that word, may mean to you just the place where we live. And so in talking about our relationship to the world, you think I'm talking about our relationship to the physical sphere we we live in. But that's not the way I'm using it because that's not the way the Bible uses it. And so in order for you to understand why I say this is a significant challenge for us, you need to understand how the Bible is using the word world and then in turn how I'm using it. And then I hope it will be clear. So I'm going to go through in just a bit how the Bible uses it. But I, I want to, I want to uh, make the statement that if we don't get this right, then a number of things get off track for us as individuals and for our churches as well. If we do not get this relationship between the world and the Christian and the church correct, if we do not get it straight according to what God has said in the Bible, then a number of things go awry. And I hope to show that to you. So why is it that we need to concern ourselves with our relationship to the world and thus know how to live right in a world that's gone wrong? Well, it's because of what the Bible says regarding the world and the problem with the world. Let me just give you some examples of what, uh, what Scripture says. If you care to jot these down, there's Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Romans 12, 2. And many of you are familiar with Romans 12, 2. It says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, why shouldn't I be conformed to the world? You get a hint right there in Romans 12 that there's something wrong with whatever this thing is called the world because I'm not supposed to be conformed to it. Neither are you. So Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to the the world. You have James chapter 1 and verse 27, James 1, 27. Pure religion that God our Father accepts is this to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That's Romans one twenty-seven. Pure religion that God our Father accepts is this. Care for widows and orphans in their affliction. Keep oneself unspotted from the world. Be not conformed to the world. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. James four four. 
you adulterous people. I'm just quoting. (laughs) Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of what of the lust of one's eyes and the pride of what one has and does come not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires are passing away, says First John 2. So do you get the idea that the Bible speaks in negative terms about the world? So this, this is a frequently addressed topic in Scripture. And one, as I've said, if we don't get straight, we'll send a number of areas of our life, both individually and as a church, off track. So when the Bible speaks of the world, what's it talking about? Let me give you a working definition of the world according to the Bible. It's not the, the, physical, the physical sphere that we live in. It's not saying earth. Separate yourself. Don't be conformed to earth. That's not it. It is this. The world, here's a working definition, scripturally. The world is sinful values expressed in culture. Sinful values expressed in culture. That's a working definition of the world, that you're not to be conformed to. That you're to keep yourself unspotted from that you are not to love. It's the sinful values that are expressed in culture. Well, that requires a little bit of definition, right? What's culture? Culture is the collection of values and beliefs at a given time in a given place. Culture is a collection of values and beliefs at a given time and given place. And those values and beliefs are expressed in the arts, in our our writing, in our speech, in our dress. Those are all the things that make up a culture that are expressing the beliefs and values of a people at a particular place and time. And worldliness is sinful values expressed in a given culture. Because every culture has some good things about it. You know, I can think of some cultures that may not be true of. No. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of... Uh, anyway, I'll leave it. Every culture actually has some good things about it. That's why we have to qualify it with sinful values expressed in culture. It's not just va- the values expressed in culture because most cultures reflect the distant belief that they once had in God's original intention for his creation. I mean, most cultures honor marriage, for instance. Where'd that come from? Why is that the case? Why has it been the case throughout human history that that monogamy has been the norm? 
It has been, and it, and it still is, believe it or not. Certainly waning. Why is it that heterosexuality has been the norm? It is because these are the vestiges of what man was originally created to be. And most cultures still reflect aspects of that. So worldliness is not just values expressed in culture, it's sinful values expressed in culture. So that means you and I have to do the work of living in a particular time and place of evaluating what's sinful and what is in keeping with what God has instructed. Which brings me to then defining that first word in the definition of worldliness, sinful. Worldliness is sinful values expressed in culture. Culture is the beliefs and values that are shared at a particular place and time by a given people. But what does sinful mean then? What are sinful values? Sinful values are values that are contrary to the character of God. Values that are contrary to the character of God. If homosexuality is wrong, and let's just put that out there as a question for a moment. If it's wrong, it's wrong because it fails to conform to the character of God. And we need to show that. Because all sin is failure to conform to the character of God in some way. So the world or worldliness is sinful values expressed in the culture. Culture, beliefs, and values at a given place and time that are shared by a particular people. Sinful is that which fails to conform to the, the character of God. And so you take this issue, I'll just give a couple examples, and then we'll define it more in the weeks to come. But take the issue then of sexuality, which is just huge in our in our over-sexualized culture, right? Is the expression of sexuality in our culture sinful? Or is it the expression of the vestiges of what we were originally created? Well, it's, the answer to that is yes. Because it's some of both, isn't it? But why, what is it about heterosexuality that reflects something about the character of God? Now, what do you know about what God has revealed about himself in the Bible? What kind of God is he? One God who exists in how many persons? So what God has revealed about himself is that he is a God that is a God that is unified, but also expresses diversity. And that's exactly how he created man in his image. He created man to be unified. These two shall become one flesh. But he created them, the Bible says, and it is, takes pains to make this clear. He created them male and female in his image. Why? Because they were to express the unity that reflects God, but also the diversity that reflects God. And so any form of sexuality that violates the reflection of the character of God fits into this sinful expression. And so it's a challenge for us today as people increasingly reject their Judeo-Christian moorings, now left to sort of make it up, we're in a we're in a culture that is increasingly worldly. Sinful values are being expressed in the culture. 
Now what do we? Now what do we do? How is it that I can please God and you can please God in a world like that? At a place and time that is expressing those kinds of values. How can you do that? Do you start to see that becomes a central question now for us? I mean, if God's going to give me my three score and ten, that would be 70. It means i got 20 to go. Some of you are, some of you are in OT. I've got 20 to go. If I'm going to be here another 20 years, how am I going to live right in a world gone wrong? How do you live right in a world gone wrong? God has left us here until we die or until he returns. And meanwhile, he's given us stuff to do in the world, which is regularly expressing sinful values, things that are contrary to the character of God. How do I live in a world like that? How do you live in a world like that? How does the church relate to the world? Jesus began to address this when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. In John chapter 17, In John chapter 17, it is the night uh, before Jesus is crucified. John chapters uh, 13 through 17, those five chapters, all take place on the night before Jesus died. John 13 is where you have the Last Supper and Jesus washing the feet of his first followers. Some of you are familiar with that. And then, beginning in chapter 14, he starts to tell them, the time that I've been telling you about is at hand. So, verse 1 of John 14, stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come again that where I, and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. So this is my promise to you. I'm leaving, but I'm coming again. In the meantime, I'm going to leave you God the Holy Spirit. And for three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, he talks about that. Then you come to chapter 17. And the Bible says that Jesus began to pray. And Jesus prays in 26 verses that make up John chapter 17. 26 verses. He prays for three categories of people the night before he dies. He prays for himself. He prays for his first followers. And he prays for those who will believe because of them. That would be you and me. Now, just stop and consider for a moment that the night before God the Son gave himself, he prayed for you. Have you ever considered that? He prayed for your well-being and what would happen to you. So he prays about himself, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. I've accomplished the mission that you have sent me to do, he says. And then he begins to pray for his immediate first followers. And then by extension for for us. And here's what he says in in verse 11 of John 17. He says that they are, I am leaving them in the world. But then he goes on to say, 
but they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Now, do you guys see what Jesus is saying? I am leaving them physically in this place. So they're going to be in the world, and in that sense, he's referring to the physical places, the world, the, the earth, the sphere of their activity. They are in the world. But they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he prays for them, verse 17 of John 17, sanctify them. I alluded to that in our first hour. What's that sanctify word mean? Set them apart. Make them different. Make them different from what? Make them different from the world. Sanctify them. How? By your truth. Your word is truth. So this is where we get this phrase that some of you have heard. It's from Jesus' prayer in John 17. We are in the world, but not of the world. Okay. I get that. I'm in it, and I'm not to be of it. But then there's still the mechanics of how do I work that out? How do I live right in a world gone wrong? And if you don't get it right, it gets really messed up. Now, there are four ways to address that. Four ways to look at our relationship with the world, that we're in it but not of it. Jesus says that's the proper relationship. Be in it but not of it. But let me give you three other ways that that could be addressed, and they're all wrong. One is to be not in the world and not of the world. Jesus says, be in the world but not of the world, but some people try to be not in the world and not of the world. You say, really, how's that possible? By sharing the values of Jesus rather than the values of the world, but doing it in isolation. Not in the world and not of the world. Well, who does that? Uh, my family and I, um, earlier this month, went to southern Ohio, spent three days in Amish country. That'd be one way. Right? Isolate yourself. We're not in the world. We don't share the values of the world. But we've withdrawn ourselves from it completely. So some people try to take an approach. It's not in and not of. Amish, a monk, a monastery. Be another example of that, right? I am just shut up in my four walls. My whole life is about prayer and consecration. My individual, individual relationship with God. But I've withdrawn myself. But Jesus says I'm leaving them in the world. And if you just do a cursory reading of what those first followers did, they did anything but isolate themselves, true? <laughs> this is how they all got killed. Because they were out in it. But Amish, monasticism, and I would just add, that sometimes conservative Christianity. We think sometimes those of us who really want to take seriously what God says about not being of the world and not being conformed to the world, we think the answer to that is to separate and isolate ourselves from the world. And so we have our own versions of not being in the world and not being of the world. And there's little to no interaction 
with the very people that we've been called to reach. We set up our own structures to keep ourselves from being in contact with worldlings, people in the world. So that's one erroneous approach. Jesus says you're to be in it, not of it. But some throughout history, some today, some fairly close to home, take a not in the world and not of the world approach. And I'll look at another one here in a second. But, um, you know, Pastor, every time I say stuff, I have to say, should I really say that? I, but I will. I'll just say it. And I say it kindly. I mean it, I mean it kindly. I mean it lovingly. But one potential way, notice the word potential, doesn't mean you're doing this, but one potential way to fall into the not in and not of category is through the huge homeschooling movement we have going on now. Now, we homeschooled our kids for several years. We were very glad to do that. It worked very well for us. And then a few years ago, we we started sending them to the school they're attending now. And there is not a one-size-fits-all whether you homeschool or private school or public school. And thankfully, we've got all of that represented in our church. But when we were in the homeschooling stuff, one of the things we noticed was there was a large contingent of people that wanted homeschooling because they wanted to get out of the world. They wanted to be isolated from the world. Not everybody, but a lot. And those of you brothers and sisters who have chosen to homeschool, it can be done well. It can be very profitable. It was for us, for our girls. But make sure you are not doing that as a means to escape the responsibilities Christ has given us in the world. He says, be in the world, not of the world. Some try to be not in and not of. All right, here's another approach. You can say, we're going to be not in, but of. We're going to be not in the world, but we're going to be of the world. Who's that? Well, that's your standard worldly Christian. You know, we're, we're not in, in the sense that we created all our own parallel stuff to do. But all of our values, most of our values, come from the world. So we have our own meetings, and we got our own leagues, and we got our own coffee clutches, and we got all our own stuff that we do. We're not in the world. It's us together, like all the time. But the values that we express in how we live And even how we go about church are the same as the world. Not in, but of. I mean, think think about it. How many churches are entertainment centers today? Not in the world because it's our own entertainment. See, it's us doing it. We got our own. So we're not in the world, but all the values are the same as the world. The names have just been changed to protect the guilty. This is your standard, unfortunately, and and I can't measure it, quantify it. I don't know that it's a majority. If not a majority, it seems to me to be very close. This is a large segment of evangelical Christianity today. Not in, but of. But the proper approach, well, then the third approach is to be in the world and of the world. In it and of it. Well, who's that? That's everybody who's not a Christian. In it and of it. 
The values come from it. That's your standard unbeliever. So Jesus, and then the fourth and proper approach is the one that Jesus gives us. To be in the world, but not to be of the world. And if we're going to live right in a world that's gone wrong, then we are going to have to figure out how it is we do that. Not the other erroneous three, but rather that one relationship is the proper relationship between us as individuals, our church, and to the world. The world being sinful values expressed in, in culture. It is to be in the world, but not, not of the world. Now, I read you a number of passages that say there's something wrong with the world. There are plenty of others that I could quote, but hopefully that's enough to convince you that the Bible says there's, some, there's something amiss in the world. And so I'd like to spend the rest of our time talking to you about that. Is there really something wrong with the world? As it lives, as it expresses its values. Is something amiss? Are you comfortable with what you see in our place and our time as the world expresses its values in our culture? I hope the answer to that is no. And it's, it, the answer should be no from the moment that sin contaminated the good world that God made. There is now this pollution, this infection of contrary values, worldly values, sinful values lived out in culture. From the moment that the first man and first woman violated God's command, fell into sin, as did then all of their progeny, including you and me, now we have this, now we have this problem. And you need to see the problem. Because if you don't, let me give you what the alternatives are. If you think to yourself that, look, this world is the best it could be. It's better than it used to be because it has evolved to where it is. And it is evolving, progressing to a better state. You know there are plenty of people who believe that. That this is the best world we could have right now. Let me give you an example of someone who believed that. Believed, past tense, that. You all know the name Christopher Hitchens? He, he died last, uh, last year, right? Last year, earlier this year. And uh, outspoken, very intelligent atheist. Wrote a book called God, God is Not Good. God is not great. God is not good. Subtitle is How Religion Pollutes Everything. So that was his view. He debated. He was very smart, quick mind, good debater. And Hitchens believed this is the best, best word we could have. And yet, at the same time, I'll just think about this. The subtitle of his book is How Religion Corrupts Everything. How do you define what corrupt is? How do you know it's corrupt? Christopher, who told you it was corrupt? Who told you that what religion is doing is, is contrary to anything? Because the truth is you got nothing. When you say in your subtitle, religion corrupts everything, you're saying that religion is doing some stuff wrong. 
Where'd you get that idea? Who made it wrong? If you're an atheist, you really got a big problem. Because you know there's something wrong with the world, but you don't have a basis for saying so. How do I say it's wrong? How do I know it's wrong? Who told me it's wrong? If you care about this, you can look up a debate online between Christopher Hitchens and a Christian guy named Douglas Wilson. And Wilson destroys Hitchens, doing exactly what I'm talking about. And he keeps pressing Hitchens to say, how is it that you define corrupt and what's wrong? And Hitchens finally gets backed into the corner, and he says, the standard is, and this is a quote, innate human morality. Innate human morality. People just know what's right. And when they violate what we just know is right, they violated the standard. What's the standard? Christopher says, innate human morality. How does Christopher know that? Because Christopher said. Who defines what innate human morality is? Christopher doesn't know. Where's the book that contains the list of innate human morality? Christopher does not know. Who stamped it with the seal of authority? Christopher does not know. Because he cannot know. Now see, everybody's got to deal with this then. We're in this world, we evaluate this world, and we have to ask ourselves, is this the best? And despite its corruption and the fact that religion corrupts everything, the best Christopher Hitchens can do is say, it's better than it used to be. And it's going to get better in the future as we get rid of and silence the people who, in his mind, are intolerant and are violating innate human morality. Who are they? Guys like me. And when we're able to do that, it will be, it will be better. So everybody agrees that we are in difficulty, that we're in a mess in the world as it is, even Christopher Hitchens. But we don't agree about how we got there, and we certainly don't agree about how we're to get out of it, how it is that we're to improve it. Let me give you a passage in the Bible that speaks to this. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9. In these five verses, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, are contained God's statement of the way it was supposed to be, the fact that it's not the way it's supposed to be, and the means by which it will become the way it's supposed to be. Five verses it's, that give us the way it was intended to be, the fact that it's not that way, and how it'll become that way. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. It is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, but he has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, 
God left nothing that is not subject to him. Now, it's wordy. Stay with me. Hebrews 2, verse 6, says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You placed everything under his feet. In placing everything under his feet, you did, left nothing that was not subject to him. Wow, who, who's the him? And we think that it's talking about Christ there. And it's not. Because in verse 6, when it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. That's a quotation. It's a quotation from Psalm number 8 in your Bible. And Psalm number 8 is talking about God's creation of mankind, humanity. And here, the writer of Hebrews is now saying that God, who made humanity as the crowning achievement of all of his creative activity, placed everything under the feet of the first man, Adam, to represent God at his, as his vice regent on earth. You placed everything, God, under the feet, subject to humanity. That's the way it was intended to be. And if you go back to the opening chapters of the Bible, isn't that what God did? He creates Adam, he creates Eve, he tells them... This is why I've put you here. This is what you're going to do. You're going to rule for me. You're going to subdue the earth. He placed everything under mankind for mankind to rule on God's behalf in accord with God's created order. This is the way it was supposed to be. But then you come to verse, last part of verse 8. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. <laughs> now, if ever there was an understatement in the Bible, that line, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. What that's saying is this. God made mankind to rule for him as his vice regent on earth. But because of sin now, man does not do what he was created to do, what he was designed to do. He does not rule for God. He now engages in self-rule, autonomy. And as a, as a result, things are not the way they were intended to be. Not the way they're supposed to be. Yet at present, we do not see all things subject to him. Man is not ruling for God as he was intended to do. At present. Well, what's the solution to that? And verse 9 says this. But we see Jesus. But, in contrast, to what humanity has done with what God intended him to do. Namely, instead of ruling for God, now rules for himself and has messed everything up. What's the solution to that? Verse number 9, but we see Jesus. Now notice the language with regard to Jesus. We don't see humanity doing what he was made to do, namely having other, all things subject to him on behalf of God. We don't see that. What do we see? No, who do we see? Jesus. 
And notice the language in describing Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels, just like mankind was. Back in verse 6. Verse 7, you made him a little lower than the angels. That is, Jesus came as a man. And he was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. And you see that in verse 7. You crowned him with glory and honor. Crowned who with glory and honor? Adam. He was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, made to rule for God on behalf of God. And yet we don't see that happening now. But who do we see? We see Jesus, who has been made just like Adam, crowned with glory and honor. We see him crowned with glory and honor because... So mankind has lost his glory and honor because he's not ruling as God intended. But we see Jesus, who, was, who came as man, made just like man, a little lower in the angels, and we see him crowned with that glory and honor that was intended for humanity in the beginning. Why? Because, you see verse 9, here's why. Because he suffered death. Wait a minute. How do you get glory because you suffer death? I mean, I'm going to suffer death. Why not put me in there? Or you? How is it that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death? Here's how. We don't have time for you to turn there. But just remember or jot down Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You remember that passage? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, though he were equal to God, did not consider equality with God something to be attained, something to be grasped, because he's already God. But nevertheless, he humbled himself and came as a servant. And being found in human likeness. You all remember that? He came, God came as a man, fashioned as a man, made a little lower than the angels. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him. Why? Because he became obedient to death. The writer of Hebrews says, why? Does he have this glory and honor because he suffered death? What's the connection there? Here it is. Adam disobeyed. And Jesus obeyed where Adam sinned. And became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Jesus came and took the temptation that Adam had in the garden. Adam failed, Jesus passed. Adam rebelled, Jesus obeyed. That's why the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15. Where our first representative, Adam, who was made to rule on behalf of God, and this is the world as it was supposed to be, failed, Jesus has now succeeded. And as a result, he's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
So how's this thing going to be fixed? Who's going to fix it? If it's not right, if the world is not right as it is, then how is it going to be fixed? And it's not so much how it's going to be fixed as who's going to fix it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the one and the only person who can fix it is the last Adam, Jesus. Now, how's he going to do that? How's he going to restore all things so that all things are subject to him? How is this house? You guys see the image of the house? Imagine that's in the middle of the Garden of Eden. It was once a palace. It's now that place. How is that house going to be restored? What is Jesus doing and continuing to do to restore the broken house? And that will be our answer to how we live right in a world gone wrong. I'll give you a hint and then we'll quit for today. But the way Jesus, the last Adam, is going about that restoration process of making right what has gone wrong in his otherwise good world because of sin, that involves you and me. That restoration process involves you and me. He's the only one who can make it happen, but he has chosen to make it happen through you and me. Through a thing called the church. Through a message called the gospel. This is the means that he has chosen to restore what is broken. And over the next several weeks, we're going to see how we fit into that. Repairing God's broken world. Living right in a world gone wrong. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider this crucial matter as it relates to us and our relationship with the world. Yes, the physical world that we inhabit, but more the worldliness, the values and beliefs that are expressed in culture at a given place and time. You've called us to remain in it, remain in on the earth, but to remain in the culture, but not to be of it. Lord, it is a very difficult thing for me to navigate my way through that. It's very difficult for us as individuals to navigate our way through that, to know what things in the culture are proper expressions of your intention and those things that deviate from it. And then when we're able to identify them, to see what it is we're to do about it. And so, Lord, this is a most important question for us that you have strewn throughout your word as you've left us here to be your representatives and actively engaged in the restoration process that you are doing in your world. We thank you for letting us be your ambassadors, your representatives, your hands and your feet and your mouthpieces. But Lord, it's a struggle for us and we need your aid as we look at your word and we decipher how it is that we're to live from day to day as representatives of the true and living God. Lord, we want to know how to live right in this world that has gone wrong. And we want to do that today and tomorrow and this week until we come back next Lord's Day. And so we ask you, Lord, to help us with our thoughts about what we've discussed today. Help us to assimilate those and organize those and put those into practice even this week. We ask you to grant us safety and to help us to learn further how we can represent you and bring honor and glory to you that you deserve. Bring us back next week, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen.